they use virtual reality to, to implement immersive learning and like to trigger all kinds of responses. And we had fun de developing those applications back then. Like we would design buildings 40 stories high and jump from it. morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Compost. I'm your host, Diego, together with my co-host, Jean-Luc. Jean-Luc, how has it been? It's, it's great. I think we made a commitment last week. You pulled through for our guest for today. And wow, okay, we have a big lineup planned for the next, I think, month of Social Compost, maybe even two months, maybe even three months. So I'm Yeah, I'm still sending a few out. I'm really excited about about the next coming weeks, but we get to kick it off with a brand new guest. And yeah, he and I have more in common than, than we like to acknowledge. Yeah, we were discussing who's going to do the introduction. Yeah, yeah. I, I met him for the first time a few months ago, actually in person. We've been connected for a while now, but then you came along like, I know some stories. So tell us, what kind of stories do you got? Well, first of all, we know each other for longer than 10 years. And, and we don't even realize that it's, it's been over 10 years already since, since you know each other. And we used to be colleagues. That's, that's where it started. I came in as like a scrappy, like intern being, I mean, I finished all my, my degrees and came back to Suriname and I didn't know anything about web development and social media at the time Well, I had a Facebook, I had hives, I had high five, but I didn't know anything from the from a business perspective. And uh, he was already a, a web developer for quite some time. And we worked together a couple of years and then he went on to bigger things because he made a commitment to himself that he was going to start a business as part of a, of a larger organization. And I also decided to go into a larger organization and start my own business. So we do have that in common. What we also have in common is that we once organized tourism tours together. He used to have a bike trail in uh, Comoena. And uh, we'll, we'll, I think we can kick it off with that because I don't want to keep him waiting too long. He's one of the hardest working old colleagues of mine and also somebody that I actually still work with till this day. And I'm actually going to, the last thing I'm going to say, my mom brought out a book this week, weekend. She wrote her own book yeah, to yeah. build her own website, but also with the help of today's guest. Without further ado, Simon Nurjan, welcome to Social Compost. Thank you, guys. Simon. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for being part of this exciting lineup that you guys are talking about. Yeah, you're kicking it off. Yeah. No, seriously, you're you're kicking it off. We we made a commitment last week that we decided, you know what, we, we want to take social conference serious, but the most fun way to do it is with guests, and yeah. we're gonna do a lot of variety. We're gonna have guests from all over the world next coming months. So I think Diego was listen before you do that, Chaluk. Let's let's bring in a local. Let's bring in somebody, and he doesn't know that basically you host all my websites. 
and and then whenever whenever there's whenever there's something that that is is about web development, Simon is basically the, the first one that I go to. Him and Raul Brahim are the the ones that I go to when it when it comes to web development. Yeah, and Simon has been long overdue. I actually been behind Simon a few months now. Cool. Oh no, yeah, finally, I did have another meeting today, but I kind of called it off or did the other one earlier mm-hmm. just to join this session and not reschedule it. But let's start off with that actually, because you're part of a mastermind. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's true. I'm part of an organization called Nagasari, which is well, it started off as a mastermind group and then it grew out more into business empowerment because there are a lot of entrepreneurs these days. And one of the challenges is that we often need to talk about our challenges with other entrepreneurs and share knowledge with each other. And the solution to some of the problems are often very, very easy, but we just don't have it because we don't talk, right? So it's, it's, it's necessary for us entrepreneurs to talk to each other and learn from each other. And that's why I decided to join Mabasari and we have a a expo this weekend, which I I encourage you guys to, to join coming Friday and Saturday. So we're hereby invited. Uh, what's the location? What's the time? What's it called? We're starting at 6 p.m. The location is uh, Mensa. And we'll be, we'll be displaying some virtual reality applications. That's something something new for us to bring into the market. Uh, it's actually technology that has been existing for quite a few years, but we finally decided to add it to our portfolio also. Interesting. So we got a promo part done of this episode this weekend at Mensa. Check out the expo with, you're going to meet a lot of entrepreneurs and Simon's going to de- be there with some VR stuff. We're going to talk more about VR a bit later, but let's uh, go back a bit in time. As I was listening to Shanduk's story on you guys' trajectory, similar trajectory, started your own company as part of, part of a, a larger group. You went deeper into web development. So how did you go from like touring in Kamoeno on bikes to web development? Well, it has been web development first. It started off, I always say 17, but it's 18 now, 18 years ago, out of curiosity in my room, how do you create a website? And I started looking up tutorials and started developing websites. And I soon discovered that I could create something for people, for companies and started doing small freelance job for customers. And it all went from there. What, what, what was your part, like? first actual product like that went, you know, out in public? I think it was, I did a project for CQ Link. It was a company, an internet company back then. Jeez, jeez, CQ Link. Like that yeah. was, that's like the OG of the internet in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Well, that don't know. Yeah. yeah. But when I come to think about it, if I compare what I did back then to what everyone's doing now, it's like a big difference in in, 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 in technology, we didn't have mobile browsers back then. So I was tied to a computer, but yeah, my, my personal vision is to continue growing and from freelancing became working for a company and then I grew from there, but the, the urge to start something for myself was always there. And then I started with dynamics in 2012 together with another partner and we started off with small customers, well, kind of everything that came in just to, to pay the bills. Right. 
And nowadays we have quite a large portfolio and I'm, I'm very proud of what we've achieved in the, the past few years, like being a brand known by a great part of Suriname. And we're also doing projects outside of Suriname right now, which is more of our, our next step, something I want to do a lot more of. You're actually, I think like ahead of the curve when it, when it comes to that, especially in our kind of industry, ICT related. And uh, you've already been outside of Suriname to see like, what's, what's the market like outside of Suriname? What, what surprised you the most compared to other, other markets compared to Suriname? What's, what's something that you feel stands out? Well, I think it's the, uh, the e-commerce and payment methods. I really wish that we had that here. If we had that, like the way it is in the United States, for example, we would have been able to create a lot of, lot, a lot more creative applications, a lot more transactions and, and surface, surface as it is through the internet could be a lot better. So in order to, to, to be able to work on that kind of technology, we were kind of required to get customers from outside. So we've developed a, a e-commerce platform, which is pretty successful in French Guyana. They do food delivery and they only do card transactions, no cash transactions. And, and they've been doing that uh, since like, since the beginning, since they started for almost three years now. And it was a fairly interesting journey for us because we didn't know anything about card payments for Europe because French Guiana is like considered Europe. We've implemented four of their major payment processors over there. And because we did that, we even got France to do another job all the way in Africa, another part of France, which is called Mayotte, small little island that I didn't even know of. It's like this tiny dot between the mainland of Africa and Madagascar. But they even have e-commerce and on that tiny dot somewhere in the ocean. And we did, we did some implementations for payment processors over there also. That's actually pretty, pretty cool to hear how that performed. But I think, how are you feeling like in, in the solutions, if you look at all the mobile payment uh, options that there have, that there have been for the past year, yeah. talking about MoPay, but also Unified Pay, also RxPay, yeah. different trend of companies trying. How, how close, what, what do we need to change to really move over to some sort of, of mobile payment system? I think the mobile payment methods are, are great. They're doing a good job so far and we've implemented them into websites and they, they're working as they should, but well, what the problem lies, I think is that the, the current generation here in Suriname is just not ready to go digital. I, I. I kind of have more hope in the next generation or the, the one that is coming up to, to go digital, but you might skip this one. Before we go into the, the generation and the going digital stuff, I, I want to, you know, on, on a more macro perspective, basically you had to learn without having touched it yourself, how these payment processes work. So. I'm looking at, you know, the United States, Europe, you have the MasterCard Visa network. It's a very large network of payments and that makes it possible for a lot of, you know, countries, companies to do these actions cross-border even. So how close are we or how 
how relevant is it that we integrate into that network versus developing or allowing our own networks to be created or provided by local providers? Well, I think it, it's good that our local providers are developing their solution. But even if we did integrate into bigger networks, it would be only beneficial for like a, a small portion of the economy. And for it to be very beneficial for everyone, I think a lot more people need to adapt to having like a, a bank account first, being able to have good access to internet and on their mobile phone and like adapt to the culture of like doing transaction on their phones. Like nowadays we can, we have companies paying out their employees like through the phone, right? Using internet banking and all that available, but it's like a small portion. And there's still a lot of people using cash. We've ventured into a, a, a online shop two years ago during COVID, we started shop online and like 80% of all the transactions were cash. And we had to accept it because like we needed to So it was like cash upon delivery, cash upon delivery. But yeah. Well, <laughs> on that note, is that because there is kind of like the, because the infrastructure is not in place, people are doing cash. So it's kind of a chicken and egg situation here. Like yeah. kind of, that's how I see it. Because if that option was available that people could che actually check out online here, uh, I, I do believe that the generation like the 30, 25 and younger at least would opt in for that, right? And ju just for comparison, you, you mentioned you guys uh, integrated a payment processor for this island in Africa. So is it already part of a larger infrastructure or did they are low or do they have a localized infrastructure in place that people can actually use locally even? Yeah. That's part of a, a larger infrastructure. They had actually, I'm not sure what it's called, but like their bank was actually based in France. So they're connected to that infrastructure. Got it. Yes. You get the benefits yeah. from the. Yeah. So Diego, that, this is another interesting topic, which we won't talk, <laughs> discuss or too much, <laughs> but like, yeah. like it's, it's interesting how well, like the English and the French, the French have taken care of their colonies when it comes to these kind of systems <laughs> and fast forwards and those kind of. You know, those kind of things that really help you all to be connected with the Western world. But good, that, that's another topic. Uh, that's another discussion. <laughs> that's a totally I agree, discussion. yeah. So, so quickly to jump in on, I have a question as well, but Donovan mentioned something interesting. A digital payment law, mm -hmm. once all the payment possibilities are easy to acquire. So, so for, for the next generation, like what's the easiest way to, to, make, to, to make this process go, go smoothly? Is it mobile payments? Do you think we have a better chance with, with mobile payments than with getting people to allow them to have bank accounts at the age of 16, for instance? I think both. I think, how do you say that? If you have a bank account, it, it seems like you have something, something more solid. But if you have your phone connected to, to it in some kind of way, it, it makes it just easier to use. So I think you have to go with the... Boats. You need a practical one, like your phone, easy yeah. payment, squid, but also yeah. like yeah. legitimizing it through, through, a, through actually a, a bank account. Okay. So and I think the, the earlier you do it, the, the faster people uh, adapt to it and will use it a lot more also. Speaking of culture and not only have you provided 
you know, uh, services, projects for clients outside. Also visited uh, several regions around the world. You've been to, if I'm not mistaken, Singapore. And recently, when I actually met you in person, we went to the wildlife program together. So can you tell us a bit about what was the culture like in, you know, in the East, a country like Singapore in the East, uh, Asia, versus your experience in the West, like US, and then bringing that back yeah. home? Like how, how has that opened your perspectives or thought process on providing solutions? Well, first of all, when I went to Singapore, I worked on a virtual reality application for a, a huge school. It's called the ITE College, where they had this massive room with 3D projectors, where nowadays we just use the MetaQuest. But the, the one thing that I think that I realized is that we have the, the skills, the knowledge to be able to provide solutions all over the world, right? And I worked on a a software platform over there, which I didn't even know. And it was just about program. I think once you know how to program, you can do, you can program like any language because it's like the same logic. But the other interesting part is that in Singapore, everything was so fast paced. Like people were moving at a fast pace as, as on, on a massive scale every day. Uh, but at the same time, like they are collecting data on the same speed. And I, I keep talking about this example where I had this, this card, this key card, which you could top up also with credits, money. And then I used that card to lock my hotel room, open the elevator, go onto the train, check into the bus and open up my office. But if you come to think about it, like they can track every movement you make throughout the day because you're using that one card to tap in everything. And I can I could even buy a, a snack at the train station with it. So that's how, how, how now. So basically it. you can purchase a snack at the train station with your room key. Yeah. Yeah. They had everything programmed on it. And that was like mind blowing for me at the first time. And just at that moment, I had a hundred uh, megabytes per second on my mobile phone. Right. So I was like sitting on a bus and giving people virtual tours. Like, oh, <laughs> like a true Asian, like a true Asian. Yeah. Well, your experience yeah. in the, being a guide for tour, you know, gave <laughs> anything. <laughs> yeah. I was often called the Filipino over there, but I was like, no, I'm from uh, Suriname. And I was, Do you mean Sudan? Like, no, <laughs> Suriname, that's all the way in South America. A lot of people over there don't know us. Right. We, do, we never heard about Suriname. And even when I checked into Malaysia, they saw my passport and it's like, we don't know this passport. And they opened it up and scanned it and like, okay, yeah, okay, you're it from works, It works. <laughs> it works. Let's, let's jump into, because I find this also, and, and it's a mind, it's, it's a mind tease. So you just mentioned that with one card, you can basically do everything like open your room, yeah. but also pay for something at the, at the train station. So when we were talking about the cash upon delivery thing, like one of the things that's really weird with this culture, there's a lot of trust involved with Suriname yeah. vendors. So yeah. we take the risk and it, it's been like that everywhere in the world in the past, but we take the risk of actually making a package, creating a product, bring it to somebody's home and doing all the work up front, like all the costs yeah. up front. And that person at the door paying for it, which of course, 
there could be a situation where the person at the door says like, yes, I didn't order this. And then you're just standing there and you're like, wait a minute, I, I, or the order is incorrect. And then you have to reimburse your client because you gave an incorrect order. Now, one of the best things like for a business to have with digital payment is basically you pay first. So the risk is more on the client side than the business side. So how much does that take into account when you're thinking of like, there is a low adaption, like people are not used to online payments. And I'm seeing this with myself. Anytime, except for crypto, if it's crypto, I make the payment easily. It's like, yeah, sure, I'll pay for that. But when it comes to like cash from my actual bank account, Whenever I have to make an online payment, I'm like much more hesitant and I want to double check, triple check, just to make sure that there's nothing that could go wrong, but still I'm hesitant towards using online payments. And how much psychologically does this kind of play a role for, for why people prefer to do cash payments instead of prepaying through, through uh, online or mobile payments? Well, I, I think, first of all, looking at the entrepreneurial part of it, like just being in, in, in Suriname, you have to be prepared that you have to fight certain battles to get things done, right? So you have, we do this knowing that there are risks involved and we're just willing to take it because like you either do it and gain something or don't do it and gain nothing. And that's, that's from the entrepreneurial part. But if I see it in myself, like when I do credit card payments, right, it, it it's a lot easier and I, I tend to, to approve faster and you don't overthink making a purchase. And uh, that's actually what I experienced from it. If I can add, I, I think it's, it's about friction because like what, what we have now, where, when you mentioned making a payment on Chandu, I'm thinking about making a bank transfer. You you have to input the, you know, the bank account number, payee, and there's different types of banks, etc. You could make a mistake, it goes to the wrong account, and then you got to call support. And then that's another few weeks or a few days going past by. So people kind of want to avoid that headache, which adds a layer of friction, I feel. Um, But also bigger payments. I think it's also bigger payments now that I come to think of it. Yeah. and, And bigger payments obviously make sense. I think... If you, if you come back uh, in Simon's example of a credit card, because the credit card we use are either on a Visa or MasterCard network, obviously they're connected to one of the local banks also, but yeah. you kind of have some kind of coverage or insurance by these networks that if something goes wrong with the merchant, you can, you know, file in a report or something and that gets resolved systematically. So, and that removes friction or headache by the consumer. So when I'm thinking about these payment solutions, it's about removing friction from the different layers to not even think about, think about it. Nowadays, you just swipe for people who have cards, actually, but yeah, but yeah, that's what happened. Well, actually you, you put in the chip for some reason, like in a lot of countries, they moved away from the swipe and are all using the chip now. Yeah. Actually the, the U S was behind this trend. The U S was less secure. Because they were swiping uh, all the things. Europe was more secure with, you know, the chip uh, model. Not sure about Asia, where Asia was at that time. But 
that's what, what I should just have one card for everything, I guess. <laughs> so they're way ahead of us. Like also with, I, I don't know how much you guys have experienced or have experimented with WeChat, for instance. Like how easy no, it is to, to pay, pay with WeChat. Of course, a lot of functionalities don't work outside of China. But like Surinamese students in China are like, guys, WeChat is it's insane. I can do everything with my phone. And like, I, I feel behind with my friends in the Netherlands when we go out to drink because they split the bill in, in the restaurant. Dickies, name Dickies. Yeah, yeah. We, we have that option. Like Mopé has that option. We, we, we haven't just normalized it, I guess, as well. And I think also with the currency, with the inflation being high, there's like, you have to put a lot of money on your phone. And yeah. that's also something that you have to get used to, similar to a lot of money in your wallet. So I think the size of the payment also so plays a psychological role, I guess. Well, come to think about it, Diego is totally right. Like removing friction would make stuff a lot, of, lot easier uh, for us. Like I, I would not go to a fat and have a drink and especially top up my wallet just to pay, right? Like instead of that, I would just walk to an ATM and take some cash out. And uh, because topping up the wallet takes a few hours, if you're like a, a, a local account or a pay owner, a hacker and bank account owner. So instead of that, you just go to ATM and get cash and have it and just pay it out and you're done with it, right? Okay, here's the weird thing. So I, I quickly want to talk about this because I think this could be helpful for others because you're on there, it's like, yeah, of course, listen, guys, you can, you can, you can, you, you can, you can just do it with Hakan Monk online payment. And the only reason to top of Unify Pay is to pay for utilities because you don't want to be in the line. But let's, let's get into your scenario, uh, Simon. So mm -hmm. if we have, get a drink, we go out, we have a drink, for instance, yeah. like we go to the ATM yeah. and we, we get cash or, or we pay. Luckily, most places where you go now, you can you can play with, pay with your debit card. So that's yeah. already a big improvement. But then, if we go to the ATM, why do we go to the ATM just to get cash out of it, but not to put more to charge your wallets with some some cash as well at the same time? Why aren't but, we, we doing that? Like, like I, I'm I not think doing the, that, the adoption is yeah. just a little bit too low at the moment. Yeah. yeah. But uh, like I'm no, go ahead. because uh, I'm curious I'm why not you're sure. doing it. I'm not I'm sure. I'm not going to tell you why I'm not going to do it and you're going to laugh. I'm not sure how quick and how fast it's going to be on my wallet yet. Be an hour or be less. But, but when you go and take out cash, you know, you have it right. And you can just, uh, you can spend it afterwards. And that's, that's why I would do that. And even if I have my card, I choose to have like some cash with me in case the card failed yeah. due to a network correct connection yeah. or something. Or just some silly restaurant that just doesn't have debit, debit card payment uh, options available that you have to pay cash only. That actually happened with me this, this past week or last weekend as well. But okay, for me personally, and this is going to be a very terrible answer. The main reason I don't top up is because uh, I don't have enough space on my phone. I have to clean up my phones, code up my phones. <laughs> you just buy a new phone for it. That's the worst possible answer. <laughs> just coming back to payments to just wrap up this section on uh, payment processors. Like 
I, I know in a lot of African countries, they use mobile payments and it's really dumbed down phones because they, they created yeah. their own local infrastructure. So it, yeah. it's a, I, I don't think it's necessarily about, you know, being part of a bigger infrastructure, bigger network. It's about that reaching that critical mass of, you know, mass adoption and removing that friction. So you need to make it as accessible as possible for people that what's the standard phone that the average person has now, right? Um, yeah. I think in Africa, they, they even use it through SMS or something back in the day. Yeah, but that, that was that, that plan failed because we had that like eight, nine years ago, we actually had already had the option. I think a couple of companies or a couple of people developed it during hackathons that you were able to pay with. We actually did that. Yeah, I, I remember that. So that that's the we thing. That. And 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 what happened was I think the, the main reason it didn't go through is because the central bank has to approve approve, approve that. And the central bank of Suriname didn't approve SMS transactions because it was like you're you're printing digital money with 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 you're with, credit. You're creating, yeah, you're you're creating a new currency, technically speaking. So they didn't approve of that. It died down. Now there's digital mobile payments. But I do feel like indeed, like if, if the next generation is going to be, it's, for them, it's so easy. Like my children are probably not going to walk around with, with cash ever. I'm not sure they're going to even have a wallet. Yeah. They'll, they'll have a wallet of some sort, but it's not the traditional wallet. Their phone basically is, is going to be their wallet. And I think that's that's one of the things that we're currently a little bit behind, but I do feel like the options are are getting more. They are, but at the same time, like you just don't wait to do stuff when you're an entrepreneur. Like you have mm. to make stuff happen, and if people want to pay cash, you, you just yeah, go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You make sure you have all the options. <laughs> yeah, and then try. You have to, but at the end of the day, you have to like. Sell, and that's why you just have to adapt to the situation. And like for some of us, like we don't have like some of the entrepreneurs don't have a lot of leverage to 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 change stuff. It might take a few years before we reach that stage where everyone, where banking gets more accessible and payment methods get more accessible and people are more willing. But at the same time. The business shouldn't stand. It, it depends on the kind of business, right? Like, yeah, that that that, too, yeah. that also. Like my wife goes, my wife goes to go chapeau, and you basically have to pay with Mopeda. Like for instance, you just made it mandatory. Okay. So which yeah. is which is I mean it's cool, it's possible. No, but if you look at it, at like putting up like for instance, let if we're putting up a Surinamese version of of OnlyFans or Patreon, we would we would basically we could <laughs> we could just use the mobile payments because. People, the people who would be purchasing would be familiar with that method or would be interested enough to do so. So I do think there, there are a couple okay. of... In but, that example you mentioned, for example, GoShapo, it's kind of brand leverage there because there's a certain type of group that goes there and there's a, and yeah. you can leverage that brand to, you know, yeah. encourage adoption. So that's another way to encourage adoption. But speaking of, you know, the transition to a bit more adaptability, flexibility. You're trying out new things. Earlier in the episode, you mentioned, you know, you're looking into VR. You guys are going to demo this on the weekend too. During your time in Singapore, yeah. you've actually dabbled in that tech yourself. 
So what is it about VR particularly that piqued your interest? And while I do see even in a world still pretty early, why is it grabbing your attention and how can we use that to our benefit? Yeah. Well, I experienced it firsthand in Singapore back then where I developed applications, training applications for the students over there. And to give you an idea, the school over there is like massive, like one school has like 10,000 students and one class, like 60 students. And they're teaching subjects like, how do you call this, aviation maintenance. And at some point it becomes impossible to have 60 students around this airplane, do maintenance training and which could be dangerous. Like to give them the, the, the firsthand experience of, of the environment, they designed this virtual reality application where they could see and experience everything without the real dangers involved first. So they, they can learn better. And it's, it's kind of surprising because when you look at like an object falling, you really get the reaction from people like. The real reaction from an object falling, instead of reading into a book, hey, it can be dangerous if a wrench comes falling down. Like you really see something falling at you and you react with like your whole body. So what I'm hearing there, instead of reading a book or watching a video on YouTube, VR, yeah. VR actually triggers like emotional response or exactly. within what like a psychological response yeah. that you would experience in real life. And, and that's missing, right? They use virtual reality to, to implement immersive learning and like to trigger all kinds of responses. And we had fun de developing those applications back then. Like we would design buildings 40 stories high and jump from it. And when you fall down, you really get that feeling in your legs where like having your knees come here and show shoulder and stuff. And and other things that you mess with graphics and only look following slow motion. And it was kind of fun. But um, at the same time, I uh, think it's uh, a huge thing. Simon, uh, there's a light uh, crackling in your mic. Oh, it just stopped. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. go ahead. Okay. Yeah, at the same time, I think it's a, a very useful technology to, to be used in companies for induction training, on the job training, having people see an oil rig from from up close before going over there first. So it can be very useful. You can eliminate a lot of danger before having people go into the real world and mess up themselves, more importantly. So we have, right now we have one young student who just graduated and he's our first developer who's developing on the MetaQuest platform. But there are ton of, tons of the platforms on which you can develop, but they both, they all work on the same principle, more or less. Like how would you describe the development curve in creating these virtual realities? Like in, in your example, for an oil rig example, obviously this is something these corporations are interested in, their models are placed, but for example, the student you got with you, like what's the curve, learning curve or entry difficulty entry curve for people to graphs and built these spaces yeah. yeah from a developer's perspective yeah first of all the the 
we studied software development and PHP building web applications. So that was his, he already knew how to do that. So he was a program or he was a program. And then we did the training and just after one month, he was able to, to, to develop VR applications. So the, the stages of development is like basically the same when you develop a normal application, you go into a design process, you just map it out on paper. And then you have to design the 3D models. Um, luckily the internet has a lot of resources, uh, where you can uh, pay someone for free. I could like download a whole house, other objects. And once you've positioned it, you can actually go and program interactions with all of those objects. And so it's basically like developing a game. So I'm just curious, <laughs> just yeah. curious, have you already designed an infinite loop? <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. But we're, we're joking around at work sometimes and I'm asking him like, where are you now? Are you in the real world or are you in virtual reality? <laughs> he says, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> you should get a, you know, a token to make sure, like yeah. knowing what the difference yeah. between real and fake. No, just kidding. But. But from a, from a, because of, of virtual reality is a lot of, there are a lot of use cases, right? Yeah, there, uh, are. there are, and you already mentioned a couple. So if you, if you look at back one, you specifically that you mentioned already is training sessions, just things that are in real life are quite dangerous that you can simulate through a VR, kind of similar how to, how pilots train basically. They have pilots have a training as well, where it's a simulation. It's not necessarily, maybe now it's even a VR simulation while it's even bigger because they have like cockpits with like a simulation for a specific aircraft. But aside from simulation, do you feel like there's also already some commercial potential for VR and what kind of commercial potential would, it would be like a low barrier kind of thing? Well, yeah, first of all, when you go on to the MetaQuest platform, there are a lot of video games over there. And I think that on itself is pretty much commercial, but I've looked a little bit into the metaverse. Like I said, uh, in the beginning, I'm really at the gates peeking in, but you really have companies designing their virtual reality offices. Um, uh, I've seen that in companies in the U S and there are massive discussions happening. Like, should we move? offices into the metaverse? Should we interact with customers in the metaverse? Should we do transactions in the metaverse? And there are the discussions about privacy, like how would you, sh how would the customer show up in the metaverse and identify that it's actually him? Like you would come in, in your avatar or you know, maybe a lion or something. And how would I identify that it's actually Simon sitting on the other side of the desk trying to open a bank account, right? And we, they have events happening like on a daily basis over there. I was placed in Charlotte and we were, we were at a conference the first day I got there, I got there and it was about the metaverse and they said like it, it had a, it has a potential of being a $800 billion business, right? And I think if a lot of big companies project that, it, it, it's just, they're just going to make it happen and it's. I'm sure it's going to be a big business for us. I'm not sure yet, but I'm, I'm kind, kind of looking forward to it. Like we're already into virtual reality. I, I see an um, opportunity just to interject real quick. 
going back to yeah. the tour guide times, you know, like VR nature tours or something like that. that that's just a wild idea. That's... It's not safe, not safe to bike in Sudan, but it is safe to do it <laughs> in the metaverse. And then you have the big yeah. daft trucks going like past you and then you may hit into a game. Not just, just kidding. I think I have one more question. Shamil also has a question in the comments before I ask that question. And that's more about, are they, are there built-in safety measures to overcome dangers in VR simulation? And for, uh, for instance, how long can you stay in such a state without restraining yourself? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure, but there are definitely a lot of, uh, some safety measures, which we also encountered while developing. First of all, when you go on to the, put on your meta headset, uh, you have to define your boundaries because the other day I almost smashed one of our monitors while playing a game, but because just because I made the boundary a bit bigger than it should be, and I didn't take into account that there was a monitor over there and I actually hit it with my, we call it with one of those uh, controllers, controllers, yeah. Uh, but look, yeah, then one of those safety measures and while developing, like the way you move around, we created this virtual office that we will be dis displaying. But in certain ways, when moving around, you get a motion sickness. So just to play it safe and not have a lot of people during the expo experience too much motion sickness, instead of walking around the, the office in the virtual office, we decided to teleport into, into spaces. Like if I want to go two step further, I just teleport two step further instead of moving because in, 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 in your brain, you're, you're moving, but standing still at the same time. And that's creating some kind of that messing with your head. Yeah. You have to fake walk to, to get yeah. so, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Clear. But if you, if you, if you're used to it, you don't get it as quick or you don't even get it at all, but take into account that you might have visitors that will be experiencing, experiencing it for the first time and just alter. Uh, the movement uh, into teleporting into places. So uh, we don't want people falling down at the expo just from walking around uh, just to play it safe. Okay. So before we head on to over-unders and our final questions, the cost, that is one of, the, one of the things. So like, say for instance, you build, like you have to build the, 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 the space, how expensive is it if you look at the time and resources that you have to put in? Because I think that's one of the biggest worries. I was at High Fest last year, which was a virtual edition, and there were some limitations to the space. Like for instance, I think there was a maximum of 150, 150, 200 people that could be in one space. And like the similar event was kind of copied in an, on another virtual space as well. So not necessarily the limitations, but is it already at a phase where it, it, it's something that it's mainstream or is it like, no, we're, we're still, especially from a development and resources perspective, it will some, take some time to get there. Well, I, I think it will take some time to get there because first of all, the goggles, they go for about $300 and like, we don't expect that every household or every kid has one, but that's why we're pretty much specific about our target group. We're targeting companies who, who want to use this for a specific purpose. And so they can allocate 
a budget for it. Like to start developing for it, it's, it's not very expensive, but the, the time that put into it, like designing the environment, the designing the interactions, actually programming the interactions, testing it out, that can take a lot of time. That may cost a lot, but like the technology back then, just to give you an indication, when we had those virtual reality rooms, it was like a room of four by four meters and they had four projectors and with these massive surfers, image processors or stuff, like the investment was like around $900,000, right? And right now it's like $300. So it became very much cheaper to, to be able to experience this and to implement this. And I think more companies would be willing to implement it just because it's, it's, it's not so expensive as back then. And on the development side, it's pretty much open. Just like web development, there's a lot of knowledge to be found out there. You can, what we're doing is like, we're doing online training. We're buying those online training programs. And at the same time, you have to, we don't, they're not that expensive because like the, the technology is evolving so quick, like after a few months, we might have another, we have, might, might have to do another training program again. So it's constantly on the move, but the basic principle is still the same. Yeah. To add quickly to that, I think it, your example of the $900,000 piece four by four, it's also about fidelity, right? Like how immersed do you want to be? Cause then you have so many sensors, you have so many dimensions, whereas the, the little goggle that the quest, it's kind of you, you're confined. Yes, you're confined in a, in, in a space as well, but it has been scaled down to a certain degree and yeah. there are different levels, levels of fidelity. Same with game design, yeah. for example, you have the, the pixel games and then you have the ultra almost realistic games, right? And that, yeah. that has a huge parody in cost. Mm-hmm. But before we go into over under, Jean-Luc mentioned, you know, he went to HiveFest, but then that was just, you could join through VR goggles, but you can also join through, you know, a desktop, a screen or on your phone. So how would you distinguish that? Is that VR you having control over an avatar in space, or is it that immersion that's actually VR and getting that feeling of, you know, triggering those reactions, bodily reactions? Yeah, I, I would say the more the, uh, the immersion part, like when you put on those goggles and go into that, go into that space, like you really feel like you're somewhere else. And that's, that's also the case with the, the training programs that we're developing. Like you really get the feeling of an object. Yeah. I was just feeling like I was playing a 2D game. But then I could yeah. interact with like with the people, so I didn't yeah. feel fully immersed. So I I have to agree yeah. with that. Yeah. On a, on the desktop, you just see you would see something falling. Okay, something is falling. Yeah. But when you're in it, you're reacting as if something is really falling on your head, right? And talking about fidelity, in my experience back then, I find the MetaQuest to be more immersive compared to the projectors back then, because except for the, how many year difference is this like in, in development like We're talking about 2014, eight years difference. Mm. Okay. But you still had to put on those 3D goggles. And in some cases you might have like light shining in from the 
in, 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 when you put on those MetaQuest goggles, it, it's a bit more, less more noise from the outside coming in, like coming in from the outside. So I, th I had a better experience with the MetaQuest goggles. Fair point. Yeah. We are going to experience that uh, this weekend too. Don't forget. But yeah, Sean, look, let's go to over under Looking at the time. You can do two quick ones each. Yeah. And why don't you kick it so, off? So uh, Simon is, is just the usual overrated, underrated, Gary Vaynerchuk style, but uh, you're free to answer more and go more into depth, whether if you like the topic or not. I'm going to keep it simple. Overrated or underrated? WordPress. Underrated. Digital fashion. Not sure. In the context of yeah. VR, in the, in the VR, like. Not sure about that one yet. Good point. Okay. Facebook's purchase acquire acquisition of Oculus. Do I basically, think it's underrated? Basically, Meta MetaQuest is Oculus, right? Or am I the MetaQuest is yeah. the Oculus. Yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Oculus became yeah. MetaQuest. Yeah, I think it was a good purchase. I have no idea how much it went for. Let me let me quickly look at it. Not sure. Let me cook at the acquisition of a few. Okay, while he looks yeah. uh, that up, I have a last one for you. Unreal Engine 5. Sir, I... Sorry, I can't answer that one. Like one other thing about this new development is also that I'm kicking, taking a few step backs from a uh, real development and making myself available else, facilitating my programmers and having them do the job. Like this is my first. Okay. I'm, I'm going to replace that one. Is that a, the platform Unreal Engine 5? Game design. Mm -hmm. Is game design underrated or overrated? I think it's underrated because there, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it and that we, we, we might not uh, take into account. I think it's, there, there's a lot of effort that goes into it. Same, same when we're developing virtual applications, we, we kind of feel or sense what maybe really big game development developers go, go about. So I think it's, it's un, underrated. Okay, let's, let's, let's put in, in perspective. So in 2012, Facebook bought Instagram for $1 billion. And then in 2014, that's nine zeros. Yeah, that's nine zeros. And then in 2014, February, they purchased WhatsApp for 19 billion, 19 billion. And then a month later, after WhatsApp, they purchased Oculus VR for two billion. Yeah. So the WhatsApp acquisition was about ten times more than the Oculus acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. And the Oculus acquisition was twice the price of Instagram. Maybe it's the state of the the market. It was in the state of the the market back then. I thought two billion was a lot at that time. Right. But looking back at it now, looking at it now with the metaphors, they be projected to be worth eight hundred billion. I think it was underrated. Yeah. 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 I think I think so as well.
Well, I think if Oculus time did better, they could have got gotten more out of it. They got definitely could have gotten more out of it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Awesome. That's it for the over under. Uh, Simon, appreciate that you coming on, finally having you on, talk about your experience and about VR. Very excited about the technological developments and also the your experience in payment processing and, you know, hopefully within the next few years, you can get more of that critical mass adoption to, you know, be able to, yeah, transact more with less friction. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I think if, if we can't have those options here, we might go to somewhere else and develop solutions there, right? Yeah, this is becoming a trend, Diego, unfortunately. But businesses are also looking for opportunities outside now because yeah. of the amount of opportunities there are outside. Um, no, I agree. That's a very fair point. Yeah. yeah. So, But I'm not planning to leave. No. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, I we, we all saw, was it a picture or a painting behind you? Well, it's actually my uh, curtain. It's your curtain. Okay. Yeah, you fooled me. Well, that's nature, and uh, I, I, I love, I love the jungle, and yeah. that's just uh, so leaving. I love this trade of leaving the most forested country in the world is, isn't a real, a real scenario at the moment. But providing solutions headquartered here to outside is definitely uh, on the agenda. Awesome. Yeah. So, so Simon, where can people reach out to you if they're interested? If they heard something here? that they would like more information about if they want to be in touch with you, what's the best way to connect? You can just send me an email, info at biddynamics.sr and then you can also look us up on Facebook, Instagram, biddynamics and you'll find us there. You send me a message, send us the message and we'll get back at you. There you have it, folks. With that being said, we will be back next week with our lineup. Episodes are being populated on the website. Sean, look, it's getting there and I am excited. With that being said, John Luke, roll us out. This was Social Confos. Thank you so much, Simon, for being our guest. Diego, it was a pleasure. And we will be back next week, same day, different time. See you back next week. Bye-bye.